0: Today's readings from 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 36 to 40. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants, he is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. I'm going to read some words from... Hosea chapter 11 we're spending our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 but there's a a lovely uh, uh, passage in Hosea 11 I'd love if you could turn to turn up or I'll just read it to you verses 1 to 4 and uh, let me uh, begin with these words when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son but the more they were called the more they went away from me They sacrificed to the bales and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't realise it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. Let's just pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, reminder of the great tenderness that you have demonstrated to us and although we're many centuries after the people of Israel yet we know in our hearts we turn from you so quickly we thank you so much for your tender love that draws us with cords of loving kindness that lifts us as it were to your cheek and feeds us tenderly and so please Lord God feed us now speak to us Wherever we're at, whatever our background, whatever we're experiencing right now, please would we hear your voice. And we pray you'd help us to put what we hear into practice. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Octavio Guillen and Adriana Martinez got engaged in Mexico in 1902. And for various reasons, they kept putting off The wedding, day after day, month after month, year after year, until in June 1969, having been engaged for 67 years, Octavio presumably ran out of excuses, and um, the world's longest engagement came to an end as he and Adriana exchanged wedding vows and rings. They were 15 years old when they got engaged. And they were 82 years old on their wedding day. Uh, clearly someone hadn't been reading 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, now this morning we're uh, carrying on our little series of 1 Corinthians and really concluding this mini-series we've in, been in since before Christmas, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. Concluding our series on God, sex and marriage. It may feel like it's been going on for 67 years. It's only been a few months, but um, we're finishing it today uh, before a little bit of a breather. Um, And really today's passage is a continuation of the passage which we looked at last week which was um, Paul explaining the blessings of being unmarried. Now let me just give you a bit of background because uh, the first third of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about the blessings of marriage and a what a great blessing it is we saw that and uh, if you were away please head to our church website or YouTube channel or Spotify wherever you head out and listen to podcasts you can download uh, the messages there the great blessings of marriage in chapters uh, 17 verses 1 to 16 and then uh, from 17 to 24 there was a bit of a transition as Paul was illustrating this point in a couple of ways and then in the uh, the last section verses 25 to uh, 40 the blessing of singleness And it's important that we emphasise both of these things. But like a pendulum, no sooner has he emphasised one that we can overswing and we need to be corrected lest we overswing in the wrong direction. And last week, if you missed it, we saw not to overvalue marriage because all human relationships ultimately are temporary. Even the best of relationships, married relationships, won't last forever. Um, We will one day, if we're following Jesus Christ, we'll be united to... Him forevermore, that will last forever, but not a human relationship. And um, equally, we're not to undervalue singleness uh, because more connectedness means more complication. And uh, the more uh, attachments that we have in our lives, the harder it is to get on with um, a kind of simple life of serving Jesus. He is the one who we are all to be totally undivided in our loyalty, in our engrossment with. That's what we saw last time. Well, um, we broke the passage at the end of verse 35. Uh, Really, we could have carried on into 36. There was enough to study then. So we're breaking into simply verses 36 to the end of our passage, uh, end of our chapter in um, verse 40. So if you've got a Bible, really worth opening up uh, 1 Corinthians or opening up on an app if that's uh, your cup of tea. And I I hope, as I um, have said uh, before, that even though it may not feel that relevant for you, I think there is a word for all of us from God's word. The fact is, in these studies, we have found that some passages have felt a bit more relevant for us than other ones. So uh, the ones back in January might have been a bit more relevant to people who are married. And the studies we've had um, here in February have perhaps been a little bit more relevant for those who are not married. But the fact is, you are together today... As a church family, maybe people are watching at home on uh, on YouTube. It's great that you're here, um, and we pray you feel part of us virtually. But whenever you join a church, immediately someone else's concerns become yours. And this might not be the big issue for you, but you can be sure that all of these passages at different times and places will be perhaps the big issue, the biggest issue that that person is facing, the biggest source of temptation, the biggest prayer point, the issue that keeps night asleep, etc. So even though you may not find it that relevant, I hope that hearing God's word to someone in a different space will inform your prayers and your support, if nothing else. Well, here's our first point, and it's specifically now for those who are in relationships. Don't take forever to decide whether you'll marry. Don't take forever to decide whether you'll marry. Now in our passage we're in 36 to 40 but verses 37 to 38 Paul has said in verses 25 to 31 so we're not going to spend loads of time there but we are going to spend quite a bit of time in verse 36 so if you've got a bible you want to look down to verse 36 let me read out these words. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably towards the virgin he's engaged to and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning, they should get married. Now imagine grand old Octavio and uh, Adriano n- didn't know this verse as the years rolled on, but if they did, things would have probably have been a bit different. But before we apply it just to them, let's pause and think of what exactly Paul is and is not saying. Because it's actually, even though it reads quite straightforwardly in our English Bibles, um, the... The kind of the, the Greek that lies behind it's a little bit tricky. So have a look down. The key phrase is that middle section which says, "And if his passions are too strong, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants." Now um, that's that's what we read in our English versions. The original actually says, "If he, she, or it,", it doesn't specify whether it's a he or a she, um, um, by the way. And where it says, uh, "Feels his passions are too strong," that phrase literally is. If he or she or it is over the top, then they should get married. So if he or she is it, he or she is over the top, then they should be married. So now the, the interpreters of the Bible are trying to work out what does that actually mean he or she is over the top, and uh, there are various ways of reading it, so you could read it the way um, that our current English uh, translations uh, have it where it 's it's a he and its passions are over the top so uh, presumably uh, he's out of control with his hormones and he needs to um, be married a little bit like the way uh, the principle uh, applied in chapter 7 verse 9 if they cannot control themselves they should marry rather than burn with passion that's the kind of that's that reading of it Um, it could be she it could be he but it's the kind of passions being the big thing there or it might be that um, it's to be understood as um, over the top as and if you look in some of our Bibles, we have a little footnote where it says, a little footnote B, it says, or if she is getting beyond the usual age of marriage. And so it might be that the girl um, is over the top, i.e. They, she's getting older. And um, she's been left so long that, um, come on, marry marry this person who you're engaged to. And, and it might be that that's what Paul is talking about. So either, either passions are over the top, or they're getting older all the time. And it could be either, um, maybe the... Um, the, the, the temperature of the relationship is climbing up and up and up, but the sense of responsibility that uh, getting married um, needs to be done is just being delayed and delayed and delayed. Now, we don't I think, really need to tie ourselves to one reading or another. Personally, I think I'm inclined to say it's uh, the passions over the top one because it says at the, at the start, if anyone's worried that they might not be acting honourably, again, this could be male or female here, acting honourably. So it seems like the kind of sexual desire is kind of running away from itself. Okay, that seems to be what's going on. Paul here is um, particularly talking about engaged couples. When it's, it, it reads, um, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, it simply is his virgin. So it could be uh, a, someone who's been engaged formally or a betrothed one or just there's a relationship going on established, which I think is certainly our context today. And the lesson, I think, is quite clear from Paul. Those who are in relationships, however you want to define them, in friendship etc., don't take forever to decide whether you'll marry. We've said over and over again over the last few months, God is for sex. Sex is for marriage between a man and a woman, and marriage is for life. And now I know that um, that may seem incredibly controversial. You can dig into the messages that we've looked at in the past to try to justify that. But that last line, marriage is for life, that may inspire some of us today. Wow, awesome. Marriage is for life. What a beautiful picture of permanence and a a vision of togetherness and stability and commitment. Shakespeare's sonnet 116, love is not love which alters when its alteration finds you. That sense of wow, permanency with someone forevermore inspires many, terrifies many. Maybe you today are terrified the idea of marriage. My goodness me. A terrifying prospect of being with one person forever. That is God's blueprint, friends, for uh, sexual relationships. Don't, in other words, go into marriage with your fingers crossed behind your back, uh, thinking, well, I've got to get out of marriage card free. I can play at any moment. No, Paul has made it very clear. There are only very limited reasons in which a marriage can end. And if you happen to fall out of love, don't mean you just play the card and get out of it. No, despite what um, the government are seeking to put through at the moment. Now, well, how does a marriage service put it in the famous words you may have heard? If you've ever been to a wedding before, no one should enter into marriage lightly, carelessly or without due consideration. Now if we just kind of um, step out from the text and try and apply this culturally for a moment it's probably fair to say that in our wider culture and perhaps it's influenced our Christian subculture uh, many find that um, they just delay and delay and delay and delay making the decision whether or not to get married. And I think that delay can occur for various reasons. I think on the one hand I think the concept of till death us do part with its, its set of Um, associations of commitment really does freak people out. The idea of being committed, I mean, just think about it, in other contexts, when else do you make a decision that is so irreversible, other than following Jesus Christ? You're not kind of bailing out on him when the the going gets tough. You stick with Jesus, and you stick with your spouse. But less and less in our society, 21st century, do you buy a job for life, or, or get a job for life, or buy a house for life. Or join a church for life, even. In, a, in our previous generations, that's kind of what you did. Whereas now, we kind of pick and choose and chop and change quite easy. And so the idea of committing to one person and deliberately choosing to cut down our options and agree to have pathways closed down for us, that's just very, very scary for a lot of people. Committed to one person forevermore. That fear of commitment. It may be, another reason, a bad experience of marriage. And maybe you have witnessed, and I'm sure there will be people here in the room today who have witnessed the uh, tragic breakup of a marriage of people who you know and love. Maybe mum and dad uh, split up and you can still remember when you heard and the heartache that it brought. Or a brother or sister split up. Or maybe you've experienced a breakup yourself. Or you've seen a friend in a difficult marriage. Or maybe with difficult kids and it's just so so hard. You think, my goodness if that's what I'm going to be signing up for, then maybe no thanks. Maybe I'll just keep delaying it. I don't want to put myself, I don't want to put other people, I don't want to put kids in that situation. Maybe others of us here today just feel so aware of the sin that we have in our hearts. That sense of, I'm a broken person, I've failed, I've run away from God rather than run towards him. Really, could I be a faithful spouse for life. I can hardly be a faithful Christian for a week. This is not for me. Could I be the perfect husband, the perfect wife that my spouse longs for me to be? I guess others of us here today, maybe we've got friends, it may well be us here in the room uh, this morning um, who are already in a relationship, basically enjoying all the perks of marriage without marriage. So maybe you've got used to being together. You're, kind of, you're a couple always going hand in hand wherever you go. You're never seen apart. You're used to the late night conversations, the openness, the intimacy, maybe emotional, maybe physical. Maybe you're even sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiancé. You say, look, I've got everything that I'll get with marriage. Why ruin it by putting the ring on? Like, it's totally fine as it is kind of thing. But again, we've seen over the course of the term, God is for sex, yes. But sex is for marriage. If you want to enjoy the perks of one fleshness, you've got to publicly leave your father and your mother, and solemnly covenant together with your spouse in the union of marriage before two become one. Uh, I think Paul is very aware of the temptation to postpone marriage, postpone it, it um afraid of the formalising of commitment but then having delayed the struggle for purity that so often comes. Um, and that's, it, I think, what he's talking about. When he talks about passions being too strong, you, you're going out, you've got to between the two of you, great passions developing, and that's a good thing, but you're not doing the decent thing of actually deciding to be married. Just thinking for a moment about romantic relationship, I guess the primary point, surely the primary point of a romantic relationship is to get to know someone else, at least initially, finding out whether we're suited for each other. Could this uh, man or woman be the father or mother of any children that God happens to bring into our lives? Uh, Maybe when you share ideas about the future, share experiences about your past, think through whether there's a match. That's what you're doing, I hope, if you're going out with someone or thinking about it. Um, talking about your home lives or your interests or your passions or your convictions, your kind of Bible convictions, your theological convictions. There needs to be a match there. Surely there needs to be a match there. And of course, it's a given that there's going to be mutual affection and mutual attraction. That's the given. And as the, the relationship develops, and as you increasingly mutually agree, if you do, that you're kind of wanting to head in the same direction, well, so attraction and affection will catch up with it and will deepen I think as I've been thinking about this, I think our culture has it the other way around entirely. It puts attraction and affection before the horse of, is this the person who I could live my life with? And it's all about the attraction and the affection. That's the main thing, what we enjoy with each other rather than, are we a good match? And if that is the case, that may be the case, it may have kind of seeped into the way we experience life here in, in, um, in Christian circles. Things can go on in our heads, That isn't the same as what's going on in our hearts. And we just get totally confused and thrown. In uh, the book of Song of Songs. um, um, uh, Famously we read. Don't awaken love until it so desires. Which I take it means that there is a time for awakening love. That's absolutely right. But you've got to be sure you're ready. And that this is the person who you want a love awakened for. This is the one I want to marry. And Paul would say great But don't take forever to decide that. You see, again, as I've been thinking about it, we're in a culture where the age of getting married is going up and up and up and up and up as the years pass, the decades pass. But the age of sexual awareness and maturation is going down and down and down and down and down. In terms of social media, TV, um, the kind of cultural norms and expectations, which means you've got this growing, growing, growing gap that maybe our parents or their parents had no idea of having to straddle in terms of sexual purity but we do and um, you know, of course now the fact is there's no ideal length of relationship uh, to, of engagement or of, of, a, of a kind of dating time but it's probably fair to say it doesn't take as long as you think to work out whether you could be married to this person. And anecdotally, Sally and I went out for um, about a year and then were engaged for seven months before we um, got married. I think that was about right for us. But, says Paul, once you've decided to marry, and I think uh, 1 Corinthians 7 would say uh, to us very clearly, go ahead and do it. Don't spend forever to decide whether you'll marry. Now at that point I just want to kind of zoom out of the passage and just give you a few resources because I know uh, some of you have been uh, following up either reading or listening to Audible, these books which uh, I think have been really helpful. One thing which I, I read just t- a couple of weeks ago, um, I think our culture is catching up with some of this. Um, so I read this article which um, is, was in the Sunday, uh, excuse me, the New York Times uh, entitled Too Risky to Wed in Your 20s? Not if you avoid cohabiting first. And the argument is that actually, where, you know, for many years, the assumption has been if you really try it out before you get married, actually, increasingly, the, the, the data is seemingly suggesting that people who haven't lived together before getting married and then getting married rather younger, say in their 20s, are actually proving more stable in their married relationships than those who had tried it out first. A very, very interesting article. Go, go Google that, the New York Times, 5th of feb two thousand uh, Twenty-two. Then there's a few other books which I just wanted to kind of wave around for you um, to read or have a listen to. Sex, Dating and Relationships by um, Gerald Heistad and Jay Thomas. A really, really helpful, relatively new book on the topic. Then um, another one called Pre-Engagement, Five Questions to Ask um, Yourselves, very, very uh, worth, a short little booklet worth reading. And then one which steps back from the issue of relationships, but more the general question about wisdom and how do I make decisions? Should I go out with someone at all? Should I get this kind of job? Should I move there? Should I change church? You name it, Just Do Something, um, is the name of the book by Kevin DeYoung. And um, I think it's one of the best books I've read. Well, I think the best book I've read on the topic of guidance. And uh, I've got a good pastoral track record with that last book, by the way. Um, years ago, I was uh, doing a one-to-one with a student who had been going out with his girlfriend for, I think, several years. And, um, and I gave him the book. And uh, three hours later, he was engaged. So um, that was a <laughs> winning moment. <laughs> so you may be slipping slip into the bag of a friend. Um, um, so that's, I guess, one lesson. But I think there's a converse lesson too, which, uh, if I can be so bold to say, if the conventional wisdom would be to say that you know, you've got a long way to go before you could get married, so maybe you're here and you're still in your, doing your A levels or your GCSEs, or you've got a kind of a, a six year um, course ahead of you with huge student debt. Maybe, if you realistically aren't going to be getting married for, you know, for several years, is it right to pursue that relationship right now? Because you're not going to be getting married for quite a long time. Something just to think about, which is perhaps not thought about much. So anyway, here's the first point for those in relationships. Don't take forever to decide whether you'll marry. Point one. Point two, for those considering relationships, this is for people who are on the outside looking in, and I guess that may be more of us here today, Christians should only marry Christians. Christians should only marry Christians. I, don't, I can't move it on, let me see that, there we go. And um, at this point, um, there are only a few actual rules when it comes to the game of relationships. Very few kind of specific rules according to the Bible. Um, uh, I think, if, if I think about it, you know, compare with the game of rugby where you've got like I know, 38 ways to be offside or concede a penalty, I still can't get my head around it, but um, there's just four rules in the game of relationships, according to the Bible. Four rules in the Bible. And uh, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty black and white, uncontroversial. Well, pretty controversial in some circles, but pretty clear. Firstly, Christian marriage is to be with someone of the opposite sex. That's crystal clear throughout the whole page of the scriptures. When two become one flesh, it means one male and one female. Of the opposite sex. Someone who isn't a blood relative of yours. So I don't know if that knocks people out, but that's a deal. <laughs> someone who isn't already taken that's the third rule in the bible so you may be in love with them but if they're already married they're off limits and uh and fourthly they've got to be a christian that's that's the kind of biblical principle biblical rule here and uh at that point let me read out the last verse or the last couple of verses of our passage a woman this verse 39 is bound to her husband and the and the the context here is thinking about um Someone who's a widow who's lost their spouse. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Now, um, in other words, there are, there may be a few rules, but there's basically a load of freedom. She is free to marry anyone she wishes within those four constraints, but he must belong to the Lord. She must. If it's, a, if it's a man, she, the, the, the wife, the, the relationship must belong to the Lord. Christians should only marry Christians. Now, sometimes we read that and we think, oh, there you go. There goes the Bible, popping the balloon of my fun. God wants to ruin me, you know, make my life a misery, spoil the joy around me, and particularly cut out from me a whole load of potential guys or girls who I might... Want to pursue a relationship with them, my emotions might be leading me towards? and why are you ruining my life, God, we think? Well, is it so arbitrary? Does God want to ruin our lives? I would argue that God's plan is always the best plan. He has the better story, the better picture and vision of relationships and reality. And uh, let me read out some words from 2 Corinthians chapter six here, and I think this uh, might uh, kind of speak into it. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness what harmony is there between Christ and Belial or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols for we are the temple of the living God as God has said I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people therefore Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I will be a father to you. And you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul's logic is what fellowship does light have with darkness? What do they have in common? And uh, he's not there exactly talking about marriage, but there's clearly a wisdom principle here that says, "What's the closest friendship that you could possibly have with someone else? Well, surely it's the one flesh union of marriage." And uh, at that point, it's therefore not any Bible kind of rule from one Corinthians seven; it's Bible wisdom from two Corinthians six that Christians only marry Christians. Now, I need to do a very clear and important parenthesis, which is to say, Paul has already in one Corinthians seven addressed the the concept of mixed marriages where you have a Christian who's married to someone who isn't a Christian. So he's not talking about that here. He's talked about that already. And I guess uh, the main way he will envisage that happening is uh, where you have two people who aren't following Christ and then someone becomes a Christian once they're married or comes back to the Lord and and starts taking their relationship with God seriously when they have already married someone who isn't a follower of Christ. And uh, if you've got questions about how that plays out then uh, do turn to uh, the sermon I preached I think about a month ago on 1 Corinthians 7 and certainly there's um, real kind of real world experience of uh, friends I have people here in the church uh, who are living in mixed marriages where there's one a believer one not a believer and can testify to God's amazing grace really amazing grace in what is sometimes a challenging situation so I'm not wanting to kind of undermine that at all close brackets but in uh, one Corinthians chapter seven thirty nine, it's clear in terms of kind of intentionality and decision making, Christians should only marry Christians. Now, why is that? Why is that not only a Bible rule but a Bible wisdom? And I want to give you three very brief kind of reasons I think uh, is why God has established it this way. Having Jesus in common brings you together. In common brings you together. Uh, let's head down to the uh, Roth Park. Rose gardens after the service, if the rain clears up. And if you're there and you look at a beautiful rose and uh, your partner is looking at that rose, then the closer you get to the rose, the closer you get to each other. It's simple, isn't it? And if that rose is Jesus Christ, the closer you are to Jesus, then necessarily, if they're seeking to get close to Jesus, they'll get close to you too. That's how it works. But if I'm looking at a white rose there, and she's looking at a red rose over there, the closer we get to our respective roses, the further apart we will get. We can't fail to be in that way. Which means, if if one of you is pursuing Jesus as our first desire, our greatest love, and the other one is pursuing work, or money, and luxuries, or sport, or music, or academic career, or fashion, or popularity—you name it. Then necessarily, the further apart we're going to get. I have to say, the marriages that I've observed struggling in many respects have very often precisely struggled at this point. So can I urge you, plead with you, those of you who are who are unmarried and are looking in on a relationship, potentially thinking maybe this is for me? Can I plead with you? Don't go there. Having Jesus in common brings you together, it provides a basis for family life. That's the next uh, kind of principle I just wanted to kind of flag up. In, if in time God gives you children, and if one of you is seeking to bring that child up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, and uh, is therefore wanting to make time for church, and uh, Sunday school and after school clubs and holiday Bible clubs and and pay for for that child to go to camps and beach missions and and uh, and summer ventures and that kind of thing and uh, you're seeking to do family devotions and and uh, pray at bedtime and all that kind of thing and the other isn't well that's a pretty shaky foundation on which to build a discipleship of that or those children now again I want to Give you that parenthesis, which is back in chapter seven, verse fourteen. Uh, the Lord knows wonderfully, amazing good can be done through just one believing parent, and uh, uh, and Paul is not ashamed to say that. And maybe you have experienced that yourselves here today. So I don't want to undermine that, but I do want to make the point that as a basis for family nice as you're stepping out into a relationship, then having Jesus in common provides a fantastic basis for family life. And many, many would testify to that here too. And uh, the last little lesson there is um, having Jesus in common will help you press on as a Christian. It really will. I guess this is a kind of converse or the mirror image of the first point. If you've got two people moving closer to one rose, it brings them closer to each other. Well, so too if, if you've got two Christians who are Wanting to move close to each other and Jesus in the middle of them, then you're going to necessarily get closer to Jesus, aren't you? That's just kind of how the logic works. So, I suppose things like accountability together as, as a couple, as a family, you decide together that we're not going to watch that. And our devotion to Christ means we're going to say no to some of the things we watch or do. Or that commitment to have a quiet time and read the Bible each day. We think, I'd love to do it, but it's hard on my own. I want to pray regularly. It's so hard to do it when it's just me doing it. Or I want to tell my neighbours about Jesus. I want to open up my home and have students around for hospitality or to, 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 to welcome people in need in different kind of ways. That's certainly been my experience um, in the uh, years God has given me and uh, married to Sally. But when you just try to battle away doing all those things on your own, at godliness or getting to church when it's pouring down with rain, um, no one kind of earned any more righteous points for coming today, but it's great to see you because I know it was hard work. Or, or when you're trying to pray, and it's so much harder when it's you and there's someone else who's not really with you. And that old illustration that uh, you know, we used at youth groups about missionary dating, it's so much easier to pull someone off a chair who's standing on it than then to pull someone else up onto the chair that you're on. Just don't do it. Don't put yourself there, Paul would say. So if you're here this morning and you're either in a relationship or considering a relationship or then God would want to urge you Christians should only marry Christians. Now I want to say I acknowledge and I can see and I just I'm aware of the church family here at Highfields that will be a hard word from the Lord. It's not an easy word to say. It may feel like the eligible guys and girls are in short supply around you. That may well feel like the case. It may seem harsh if the person that you're going out with and your heart is moved to and you've got attraction and you've got affection. But in your head, you know, you don't have Jesus together. You think "Oh, that is so hard. Why are you saying this, Dave? Or maybe you're here today and you experience same sex attraction and you think realistically, I'm not going to be married to to, to someone you unless God does something miraculous in my heart and life. And so therefore I'm thinking I'm just not going to be in this place and it feels hard to say what I'm saying. I just wanted to say, if any of those are you, please, please don't suffer and struggle alone. Again, I'd want to say, it'd be so sad if in a large church like Highfields, there's kind of people, people everywhere, but not a person to talk to. So do talk to a friend, a trusted friend, a home group leader, small group leader. One of the pastors, we'd love to talk with you. I remember several years ago, Ed Shaw, my friend, came to speak at Highfields, and he said, everyone within a church family needs to have at least one or two people who know pretty much everything that 's going on in your life that 's a good bar isn 't it to, to work towards it doesn 't mean to be everyone knows everything, but if no one knows everything, then you 're kind of potentially on shaky foundations and things may go pear shaped. But let me assure you, from Bible rules and Bible wisdom, for those considering relationships, maybe even from the wisdom of those who are currently in mixed marriages, Christians should only marry christians i just want to remind you of the gospel at this point which is to say we started didn't we, by saying tomorrow valentine's day the best news on valentine's day is that god loves us as we are right now with the pressures we face with the brokenness that we have brought to the table with the mess and the loss and the heartache we are loved by god the father who cares for us like Lifting a little child to his cheek to feed us and to give us what we need. He's got a closest relationship to us than you can imagine. We're loved by God the Son who gave his life for us. Died on the cross, rose again to wash us clean. To wash our past, to give us a new present and a future. And we're loved by God the Holy Spirit who's with us, who'll never leave us. And who will help us to step the next day forward with him in faith and in trust. Those considering relationships, Christians should only marry Christians. And then there's a, a wider principle for everyone. And I, There's a final point I wanted to make, which is a kind of, again, steps out of the specifics of a kind of marriage relationship, but I think it's a principle for us all. And it flows from the, the, the Bible rules and the Bible wisdom that we've been seeing this morning. I think it's relevant for, for all of us, whether we're single, married, divorced, um, um, widowed, uh, going out, whatever it may be. And um, you might misunderstand me, so I need to make it really clear what I mean, but here's my third point. A wider principle for everyone, the closer the friendship, the wiser it will be to have Jesus in common. Now, let me try and explain what I mean by that. The closer the friendship, the wiser it will be to have Jesus in common. Now, let me try and say what I don't mean. We absolutely here at High emphasise something called friendship evangelism where we seek to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who don't know him. And I hope you have friends who don't know Jesus. And uh, those of you who are students, I guess, are surrounded by friends who don't know Jesus, maybe living in halls still. And it's brilliant. You've had a mission week this last week, and we've been praying for you. And uh, we've got something called the Passion for Life here at Highfields coming up in about a month's time. Amazing opportunities to proclaim Christ. And um, I hope that therefore you invest in friendships with people who don't know Jesus because it's so easy to lose contact with people who don't know Jesus and you spend all your time moving between a service and a bible study and the Christian union and you're going to go live your life in a little bubble and you just don't have any meaningful friendships with people who don't know Christ that is totally the case and yet And yet, I think it is also fair to say that if you're a Christian, it is absolutely okay and maybe very, very wise to have Christians as your best friends. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. As human beings, the Bible makes it very clear that friendships are incredibly important. And what friendships do in our lives is very important too. Really important. They can pull us in all sorts of directions. Peer pressure. Moves us to, to be in a space where maybe we wouldn't be otherwise. But it's the friendships that have got me there. So I want to just ask you a question as we start to close. Who are your people? Who are your people? Maybe you're serving Jesus at work. And literally everyone else at work is drinking over the limit at the office Christian, uh, Christmas party. And uh, if all your people are those leading the charge. And you want to impress them. And you want to be in with them and you want to get a laugh, then it's very, very easy to find ourselves doing and saying things that are really what that crowd is doing and saying, even though they don't love Jesus. <clears throat> or maybe you're, um, you have a kind of particular hobby or a sport that you're passionate about, and that's great, but all your time, all your energies, every bit of free time, every bit of free money, Sundays, it's all up for grab because you want to do your sport with your friends. That's fine, but just be careful. Or maybe you're retired and uh, you've taken up a hobby with uh, other retirees and maybe you t- spend time socialising with each other and you see they're just spending the money they accrued in their lives and getting better and better houses and it's all looking lovely and they're spending it all on, on uh, holidays. You think, goodness me, maybe I should do some of that. They're having a great time and I'm giving all my money to the church or to, I'm trying to serve Jesus at church, but actually that's a much more interesting, enjoyable way of living. And your friends are kind of pulling you away from a devotion to Christ. Or maybe your friends are people who, who've, who've grown bitter through experience. And, or maybe they tend to gossip and tend to um, harbour kind of thoughts that are pretty nasty in relation to other people. You're think you know, you're hanging out with people who are pretty critical. And you think, you know, I'm feeling myself drawn into that kind of way of speaking. That's how friendship works, isn't it? You read the book of Proverbs, it will say the influence of friends on each other. If they're your people, your, your main people then what might that be doing in your heart? I just want you to ask that question. It may be that some of you are thinking about where to live next year. And I think it's really, really wise to have non-Christians in your house as housemates. Really wise, because then they can see your Christian faith up close and personal. It's a great thing to do. But if I can plant another kind of complementary seed in your thoughts, which is to say, why not consider living with a Christian? Or with all Christians, because that is actually also a very good and wise thing to do. The sense of support, the sense of fellowship, the sense of uh, uh, praying for one another, holding each other accountable, offering our homes to have people over, etc. Just an idea. There's, There's a powerful verse in James 4, chapter 4, which we hardly ever look at. Let me read it out. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, says James, though don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hatred against God therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God that is a very very striking verse isn't it we don't look at it much you see God is so concerned that we be faithful to him over the years and faithfulness to Jesus Christ will mean a trumping of every other kind of loyalty and temptation And the Lord would say to us today, whatever our kind of context or our situation, for Christians, Christians are to be the most significant friends for each other. They are. Because we're a family together. We're brothers and sisters. The book of Proverbs says it in great, great detail. And wisdom would say, therefore, the closer the friendship, the wiser it will be to have Jesus in common. That applies to all of us. I guess it applies most specifically, as we've seen already today, to relationships which means uh, Christians should only marry Christians. And therefore, if you're in one, don't take forever to decide whether you'll marry. All of which are important, powerful words for some, more than others, but a message from God for us all, I'm sure. Let's spend a moment of quietness as we pray and lift our thoughts and our failings And our brothers and sisters before God in prayer. So I'm going to give a moment of quietness as we maybe offer different aspects of our lives to the Lord in prayer and ask him to seal his word in our hearts. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that we come to you as little children to a Heavenly Father who knows exactly what we need. Before we even knew today, you knew what we needed today. Thank you for your grace that you give us in our time of need. When we feel lonely, thank you for your grace that you're there. When we feel torn and conflicted, thank you for your grace which is there. When we feel regret, or guilt, or shame, thank you for your grace, which is there. Thank you that when we feel joy and expectation and hope, thank you that your grace is there. It never leaves us. It's always with us. It's been sealed in the blood of your dear son, our saviour. We praise you in his precious name. Amen.